Hello and welcome to Our Cold Conversations with me, your host, Jay Howard. Today, I bring you a conversation with Dr. Holly Holliday, Associate Professor in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film here at Missouri State. Our conversation ranges across three topics. First, we talk about the Judy Awards. These are a newly formed series of awards and recognitions for faculty, staff, and graduate students here in the Judith Inyard Reynolds College of Arts and Letters. We talk about all the details, including the fact that nominations will be open in February, and there will be an event near the end of the semester in May, which I'm sure will be one to look forward to every year. Next, we talk about ungrading, which is a topic that Dr. Holliday and I both have some interest in. Our jumping off point is the 2020 book called Ungrading, Why Rating Students Undermines Learning and What to Do Instead, edited by Dr. Susan D. Bloom. We talk about some of the topics and ideas associated with ungrading in the context of our respective areas within the Reynolds College of Arts and Letters. Those topics include metacognition, self-reflection, and the focus on outcome versus a focus on process. Third and finally, we talk about social media and TV. Dr. Holliday is a media theorist and loves teaching media analysis and criticism, which is in part a television criticism class. When I learned that Dr. Holliday was a TV critic, I had to ask her what some of her favorite current shows are. We talk in some detail about Ted Lasso. So be warned, there are some spoilers in this episode about the season two finale. Dr. Holliday assures me, however, that research has shown spoilers don't necessarily impact enjoyment. Most of the enjoyment lies in the journey to getting there. So anyway, we have a research-based justification for leaving the spoilers in the episode. Okay, I think that's everything. We will pick up the conversation now by jumping right into the subject of the Judy Awards. Thanks for listening. So Stephen and I were tasked by Dr. Wall this year as his dean's fellows for the year to develop a a pretty robust and hopefully continuing that will be a great tradition for our Cole Awards program to recognize faculty, staff, and students and all of the great things that are, that, that, um, are happening in the college. And so um, Dr. Wall gave us kind of carte blanche to, to dream as big as we wanted to and to think about the philosophy of why we're doing this and the types of things that we wanted to recognize. Um, and so that was where Stephen and I started with this. We, we thought about it being something that is um, meant to recognize, meant to acknowledge, meant to um, sort of highlight the great things happening in the departments um, across the college. Uh, the other thing we really wanted to think about was moving beyond the traditional teaching research and service awards for a couple different reasons. Uh, number one, because they are, I mean, they're traditional for a reason, I guess, but at the same time, they seem to acknowledge and reward a really particular type of work um, that isn't necessarily great at illustrating all of the great things that happen in our college and all of the great people in our college. Um, and so we are going to have those, uh, and you know, the, the, uh, you'll be getting emails, um, in the coming weeks about with more information about each of the different types of awards that you can read descriptions and who's eligible. Um, we have those and we have them for teaching in the arts and research and, and stuff in the arts and let both arts and letters. 
But then we also have um, ways to appreciate people behind the scenes, people doing really supportive work, those types of people that are, show up at every Oracle event who are there, who are doing um, either behind the scenes work or just being, being a supportive member of our college. Um, we've got awards for graduate students, outstanding graduate students, outstanding graduate teaching assistants, because a lot of times I don't think that we give enough, Stephen and I both didn't think that we give enough um, recognition to those students who are students and teachers and doing really great work in the classroom, really connecting with their students, but we're not getting the recognition, not getting the recognition that they just frankly deserve. I know you've been working on developing this um, for for a long time with Dr. Spates, yes. who's a, also a friend of the podcast. So you mentioned you mentioned faculty, staff, and students, including mm-hmm. grad students, but going beyond teaching, research, and service. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also mentioned recognition for people who are behind the scenes, people who show up to every you know Arcole event. And, you know, as a, as a, as a communication person, which I know you've studied both communication as well as media and media criticism, um, it's not, it's not communication if there's no audience, the, you know, the event isn't successful if there's nobody who shows up to it. And so supporting in a, in a, in a supporting role is a, is a huge contribution and shouldn't be a thankless job. It is. I do think we have a tendency and anytime we recognize and when any organization recognizes uh, people who are contributing, it is those front-facing, those forward-facing people, the figureheads that tend to get that recognition. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it is just as important to acknowledge the people who make those things happen. They don't exist without people who are there to support mm-hmm. uh, both behind the scenes. I think about all of the people who do stuff for Cole, all of our administrative assistants, everyone working in the R. Cole office, um, who, who our, de- our departments wouldn't function without them. And Absolutely. yeah, we don't, we don't spend a lot of time recognizing those folks. And we think it's really important that we do that. One other thing that we're going to do in addition to the actual formal awards is to think about the way that we recognize people who have had a long lasting impact in the department or who have had milestones in their career come up that uh, should be acknowledged in a public space. People who are tenured and promoted people who have been working for the college for, you know, years and years and are retiring. Those things are really important to acknowledge as well. And the other thing that we're going to think about in our award ceremony is showing what type of things are happening in our educational spaces. So for instance, COM has the Vicki Stanton Public Speaking Showcase. MCL has the Worldwide Language Showcase um, that really illustrates great things that our students are doing. Perhaps we have um, students who have studied abroad and have, you know, created a project um, that they would like to share with us. We have um, music students and MJF students who are creating and sending films to festivals. All of that should be celebrated. We have lots to be proud of for our graduate and our undergraduate students. And that is something that's going to get incorporated into the event that will be happening in May. So we're, I mean, we're just we're over the moon. We're really excited. And Stephen, Dr. Spates and I, um, I think we're going to be great hype people for this. We are really going to, we're going to push it down everybody's throats to make sure that like you said, we get a good audience. We get a good audience there. It's going to be a, it's going to be an incredible event for everybody. That's so exciting. So, um, so the timeline is the, the event will be in May. And so there'll be a nomination process prior to that. Yes. Uh, nominations will open, 
On or around February 1st, we'll, we're working with Angela and the Cole office to get that system up and running, but we have uh, selected our awards committee. There is a representative from each member of the College of Arts and Letters, um, each mem member department of the College of Arts and Letters, and Dr. Space and I are going to be meeting with them to give them a little bit of a rundown for how the nomination and award selection process will work. We're building that, like I said, with Angela right now, but um, yeah, we anticipate that awards will close, will open on or around February 1st, close early March, and then um, our selection committee will have a month or so to uh, do the evaluation process, read those nominations. And we hope there are many, we hope that, um, that it is kind of an onerous job for our committee because there are just so many that they have to read through. So we can, um, really celebrate those great things happening in coal. Yeah. Well, I, as anybody knows, who's, um, looking around in coal and as I have learned in this past year, working on this podcast, there's a lot of cool stuff going on and more than just basically anywhere you look, there's someone doing something amazing and innovative. And so um, that's what, one of the reasons I'm so excited about the institution of these awards. Um, are there any categories that you are particularly excited about when you think about the uh, Judy Awards? I wouldn't necessarily say that there is a category specifically I'm excited about. What I am excited about is that so many of our awards have specific considerations for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And mm -hmm. I think that that is, whether we're talking about teaching, we're talking about research, we're talking about citizenship, interdisciplinary collaboration, all of those things are grounded in both the university and our school's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, the departments, or, or sorry, the, the college's diversity council has a specific award that they are going to decide upon um, an award at the program that is separate from the awards that Stephen and I have put together. But so many of the awards are focused on, um, and I think that's kind of what I meant to uh, when Stephen and I were coming up with, with these awards and wanting them to be more than the traditional teaching research and service, they need something more to them. Um, and I think a lot of that invisible labor that people who uh, work on committees or who do research about issues of diver diversity, equity, and inclusion, however, we're defining that it's not, again, always that front-facing, really celebrated type of work. And so we wanted to foreground it. We wanted it to be something that um, beyond just being a good teacher, how are you thinking about the cultural competence mission of the university? Frankly, that's that's how we look at the way that diversity, equity, and inclusion are incorporated into the classroom. It is something that is a central pillar of our university, and we want to acknowledge that. One of the topics I know we have a mutual interest in is uh, the topic of what is called ungrading. Yep. Um, and we've both given a little bit of thought to the application of ungrading in different areas that we have, right. um, you know, that we teach in. Um, where did you hear about ungrading and what have you heard about it? I believe that the first time I came across that specific term was on academic Twitter. And of course, being a informal subset of Twitter, um, not an official social media platform, but academic <laughs> Twitter, um, I follow a lot of other professors and they're beyond just talking about subject matter. There's a lot of discussion about pedagogy 
and what we can be doing better. And especially thinking about the place that we find ourselves in now as educators and having to almost turn on a dime whenever we went online and in during COVID and, you know, quarantines and, um, what that meant for learning. And so I, I believe that was the first time, you know, very, not all that, not all that long ago that I learned about ungrading, but my understanding of it, and I've got a couple of books on my to read shelf on my Goodreads um, about ungrading, but my understanding of it is it isn't just not giving grades because ultimately the way that the structure of our institutions of higher education are, we award grades, um, we deliver grades so that students can earn credit and then ultimately graduate. So, so it is necessary to grade, but in terms of what those grades look like, ungrading is much more focused on what's called metacognition um, and reflection and thinking about learning as a process, less about that rote memorization or, um, or you know, mastering a set of skills and then moving on to the next set of skills but being in constant reflection about not just what you're learning, but what that means for um, not just for the subject matter, but, but your learning process in general, what your strengths are, um, what you can always be you know, doing better, what sort of you know, decisions that you can be making about your learning process. And so the metacognition um, piece is that keyword, is that sort of buzzword that that a lot of the reading I've done about ungrading, and again, much more to do, it, that, that's, it's really focused on that idea of metacognition and self-reflection. Thinking about your thinking, which would be ideal, um, especially juxtaposed against the alternative of not thinking at all yeah. and just getting grades. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of interesting meat there, you know? Yeah. I first heard about ungrading through my wife, Amber, who teaches in the College of Ed here yeah. at Missouri State. And yeah, it's it's like, so, so the problem that ungrading is trying to solve is, as I understand it, that like everyone hates grades. Yeah. Um, and it, but also that, you know, teachers will, will spend all this time writing this feedback for a student. And then the student doesn't even look at the feedback. They look at the letter grade and then close it, you know, yep. Um, yep. with never, never even laying eyes once on the feedback. Cause it's not, it's not of interest. It's not um, something that is that they, that, the, that anything in the system says that they should care about, right. You know, cause it has no actual impact. And so what ungrading does sort of replaces that simplistic letter grade with thorough narrative feedback and student self-evaluation, right. right? But then I wonder, you know, on the face of it, it sounds like, oh, teachers aren't grading. That sounds like a lot. It's a lot easier for the teacher. But actually, it sounds like a lot more work when you start looking at the uh, the implications of w what it would mean. One of the questions I had was, how does this even work with Blackboard, uh, yeah. you know, or, or whatever the uh, learning management system is? Because because eventually a grade has to be assigned. Right. Um, and I think depending on there's a tons of different ways it can look, but the student partners the student is an active participant in determining what the grade will be. Correct. Correct. Uh, so and it's, yeah, a lot of what I read was ultimately at the end, the students give themselves a grade and, you know, obviously um, with the caveat that the professor has the right to, if you give yourself an A, but you have participated at all, you're not getting an A. 
this, is, uh, this doesn't check out. Yeah. yeah, this doesn't isn't quite consistent. But a lot of the reading has that you know, in a, educators' blogs, um, that students have a tendency to lowball themselves a little bit and and mm, grade yeah. evaluate themselves a bit more critically than I might um, as their professor. So yeah, and I think that I think you bring up such an interesting point, Jay, because on in in a colloquial way, if we just look at the, the word ungrading, it seems like it seems kind of counterintuitive to what it actually is. It's actually much more active grading. Um, it's just removing. I don't I don't want to say that ungrading is a misnomer, but it's it's removing the primacy placed on, as you said, that letter grade, and really more focused on things that matter, things that are substantive, things that are going to actually make you learn. And what's so appealing about it to me is part of my frustration as a professor, and this has been the case as long as I've been in the classroom, um, since I was a a wee little baby um, master's student, um, first teaching when I was 21 years old, especially, and it's hard because as somebody who went to get a PhD and who loves to learn and wanted to be in an environment where I was constantly learning and I was constantly getting to be curious, it's difficult for me to acknowledge the fact that not everybody's that way. Um, and those people who want to just get a credential to be able to graduate and to move on because they need a bachelor's degree are only concerned with looking at the grades. Um, I'm somebody who wants to learn for the sake of learning. Not everybody's that way. And so it's a really, it's a really difficult struggle for me to think about how I would implement ungrading because I would want students to be as excited about the material as I am. And I don't know if that's a reasonable I don't know if it's a reasonable expectation. I don't, I, you know, I don't know. Oh um, man, everything yeah. in me says that that's a reasonable expectation, but that's just my vote. I know. Well, I know. Um, it's college. But that, and that's the thing. I think that what I, what I struggle with is especially, and you know, you're in a, you're in a fairly, very similar position where you are somebody who's invested in higher education and you're, here, <laughs> you're teaching. So I don't know that we are representative of necessarily all of our students. I do have students who are super, super curious. Um, and, and I believe that they will learn for the sake of learning. Um, one time I tried to be a cool professor and decided that I was going to not have exams and I was just going to do like reflection essays. And, um, I did that once I did that once because I (laughs) felt like this is where the challenge comes in, because I think that in terms of ungrading, it isn't just not, it isn't just removing grades. It's providing that substantive feedback. Um, but I'm tying this together with that, that desire to have curious students. I really struggled that semester that I wasn't, that I wasn't giving exams because I don't think I sold it to my students, why they should come to class and be invested in, in caring about what we were talking about if they weren't being tested on it. And that's, I believe a failure of our education system writ large, you know, not to get too, um, make the conversation too big, but, um, the t- teaching to the tests and the learning to the test and stuff. Yeah, we're outcome focused. And what I think is beautiful about ungrading is the way that it re- removes that focus on outcomes. But the challenge is students have been conditioned since kindergarten, as I was too, um, to be focused on outcomes and place a lot of, my grandpa gave me, if I made it, oh, if I made all A's for the year, my grandpa gave me a hundred dollar, a hundred crisp hundred dollar bill at the end of the year. Wow. Um, yeah. It was really great, especially, oh my gosh. I mean, hundred dollars is a lot to me now, but it was a lot <laughs> to a seventh grader. And so yeah. um, it's difficult because those sort of 
external motivations are what guided me for much of much of school. Um, and I think that students are are very much still in that frame of mind, like the great is what matters. Um, and it's yeah. an external motivation. And sometimes it is, sometimes it's like metaphorically, well, I guess it's not metaphorically, it's pretty literal, like their scholarship money's attached to it. Mm. Um, and I get that, but I think that that makes, it's going to make the ungrading thing really, really difficult because they want that. But, okay. But how do I know how I'm doing? If you're not giving me a letter grade, well, you're reflecting on how you're doing, you know? Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Like philosophically, I love it. Pragmatically, I'm really hesitant to do the work to implement it, I think is what I'm, where I'm going with it. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I think you make a great distinction between the philosophy of it and where the rubber meets the road sort of practice of it. And the question, and I know, I think we might be both have the same book on our shelves, but it's not, it's not by one author. It's, there's a, a whole bunch of different people who have taken a bunch of different yes. approaches. Mm -hmm. And so while different approaches may exist, they all have, they're all philosophically connected with this idea of, I don't know if it would, I don't know if it'd be replacing a focus on outcomes with a focus on process, yeah. but trying to elevate a focus on the actual learning process. But the, and the, the problem is the outcomes are the things that are easy to measure, They are, you know, yeah. and it's harder to measure. Like, how do I get a hundred dollar bill for for process. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think, and that's the thing, I think it's just been something that's been so conditioned. Um, mm -hmm. and I get it. I really, really do. And it isn't that I'm not going to try it because I feel like there are some elements of it that I, I'm really big on process in general. Um, and I, you know, when I think back when I taught public speaking, uh, part of for, for many years as a graduate student, part of the, um, part of migrating philosophy was all about strength and growth and the way that I saw people move from this first speech on, on point A at the beginning of the semester to, uh, to, to December or May or whatever, when they're giving their last speech and, and to see that improvement yeah. means a lot more to me than, you know, um, and so I scaffold my assignments in, in general to, to, to give really substantive feedback on each of these different elements of a final paper or final project that hopefully students, and, and when I go to, to grade the final thing, I'm looking at, did you implement the feedback that I gave you on process assignment A, B, and C? Uh, and that makes a lot that makes a lot of difference in the grade that students end up getting because it is incremental learning. It is. So philosophically, I think I'm doing, I'm really well positioned to be somebody who's philosophically aligned with ungrading. Yeah. It's the, the implementation that scares me a little. I think it's one of those things that because it isn't as easy as just saying, okay, I'm not grading anymore. It's something that takes really careful thought and planning. And so to me, it almost seems like, okay, I need to take a semester sabbatical to, to go to conferences about it and carefully plan my pedagogy around it. Because I think it takes that level of investment to do it yeah. right. And that's another piece of resistance that I have is that I just don't, I want to do it right if I'm going to do it. And I know that that takes time and commitment and with, a, you know, the million other things we all have going on right now, it's not something that um, I necessarily have time to do well right now. So it's such a good point. And I, I try to remember that too. Like I never want to do something 
half baked in, yeah. in class. And if, if like, if I don't fully understand it, then I certainly don't want to pitch it to my students because I'll get eaten alive by the questions that they ask, you know, as Ron Swanson of Parks and Rec say, don't half ask two things. <laughs> that's right. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. I, I hope that we um, both continue to experiment with it and, yeah. and find what works. Now, now that we've chatted about it, I have like a thousand more questions and thoughts on this topic. <laughs> Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned something called academic Twitter. Yes. Um, which is, I don't know, the phrase is in, indicates that you know what Twitter is and how to I use do. it. Mm -hmm. Too. Which is something that's um, always been very mysterious to me, um, but it also highlights for me the fact that you are a social media expert as a professor in the um, allegedly, department. allegedly. <laughs> I looked up. Uh, I know that you're, yeah, some of the classes you've recently taught or are teaching in the future are media three fifty five, so the social media, and media four fifty four, media analysis and criticism. Yes. One of my questions that I always wanted to ask is, of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which one is social media? It's it's all of them, I think. Um, okay. I do, you know, it's a joke because um, I have a love-hate relationship with social media, genuinely, because I do think that it is, it brings us together in a way that would not have been possible um, 20 years ago. So I am among my peers. I am, um, the young person in the room. Oftentimes I'm a, a relatively young professor. Yeah. Um, so I did not have social media until I was in college. And I recognize that that's going to make me sound super young to a lot of people listening to this who did not have social media until they were full grown adult. But I say this because I'm teaching students who came of age with it, but, but especially for these Gen Z folks for whom it has always been around and been a feature of, of life. And so it's hard to teaching social media is so fun. It's so fun because I get to have great conversations with my students about the role that it's played in their lives, about the way that they met their, their best friend on Twitter because they have a mutual interest in, you know, they live 300 miles away, but they have a mutual interest in a particular band or television show mm. or whatever. Um, I think that it is especially wonderful. And I've done research about this uh, when I was in graduate school related to Lady Gaga's fan community and the way that, especially for marginalized kids, queer kids in particular, um, Lady Gaga, it has been this beacon of light and the fan community has been this beacon of light. And and I talk about this in my social media class all the time to be talking to a, doing an interview with a 14 year old kid who says, you know, I don't know that I would still be alive if I hadn't found this Lady Gaga fan community on Twitter. That's incredibly powerful. And so I think that a lot of times we forget that it can, it can build community in a really wonderful way. Um, it can connect us to people really, um, you know, from previous points in our life, it can it can show us how our ex-boyfriends are aging. It can, I mean, there's all sorts of like really <laughs> fun um, ways that it, it can exist in our life. Um, but, and I think the but caveat is really important. I, it, you know, as somebody who is a really well-adjusted 
expert in media, the role that media play in our lives, I get depressed by reading Twitter. I get disenchanted and frustrated and mad at people in my own life. And I compare, do social comparisons, sort of engage in that practice of social comparison with people who are my peers that are doing really cool things. And so if I, as a really media literate, um, well-adjusted grown up, <laughs> still have these interactions and experiences with social media, I absolutely recognize that there are a lot of not media literate people, um, young people who are still forming their brains that are struggling in a lot of ways with social media. And so I think it's important to a joke that it's, you know, all four horsemen of the apocalypse, but uh, you know, there are a lot of really great benefits, but there are also a lot of things that we should be cautious about too. So yeah, that was a long-winded answer to your question of it's complicated. Yeah. You highlight a lot of the, uh, I can imagine how fun it would be teaching, teaching classes like that. Digital natives, people who have lived with it ever since they were little, it being social media. Um, I wonder what assumptions that they make about the, the presence and impact of social media that they don't, that are like unexamined or uncritical assumptions that they have that um, they maybe are made aware of or um, brought to light in a way that they should question for the first time uh, as a result of taking some of these classes? Well, and I think that, so I teach, I'm a media theorist. I'm a trained media theorist. I have no industry experience. And so one of the first things I say to my students when they come into my social media class is, um, this is a media theory class. This is social media theory. We are not going to be learning how to do social media better. We're going to be examining the societal effects and implications of social media. And so we're going to be looking at things like privacy and legal structures of social media, the way we build our networks that have a really um, youth culture and digital cultures and um, the way that age and race and class plan to our uses. I have a really fun day on online dating um, where I I did a little ethnographic research and created an online dating profile for myself so I could sort of show them the way oh, nice. people communicate through, through, um, and what makes a good, what makes a good, you know, first impression, how we evaluate each other based on, you know, just these tiny cues that we get. It's a super fun class. Um, and I think that overwhelmingly, when I look at my course evaluations every semester, I have students that say, this is not what I expected it to be coming in, but I learned so much about, that I never knew about Facebook's privacy statement or the way that I am unconsciously crafting a particular version of myself to put on yeah. social media to, to the, with, you know, it's the filters I pick. It's that, you know, and I think it's, what's really, really interesting is I have watched, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of my students and former students on social media. Um, a lot of professors are really resistant to that, but I'm not, it's amazing. It really, I think it makes me a better, better professor because I get to know them. It's wonderful. Um, hmm. But I've watched this really interesting transition from super, super carefully curated model-esque, influencer-esque photos, especially from young women, but not exclusively, to over the last several, from the last several years, to now I'm seeing a lot more. Here's a photo dump of just like random photos that are super casual and some of them are bad and some of them are, and so I think that it's this rejection of this. It's really interesting to watch this rejection of the overly curated Instagram post 
but you're still saying something about who you are when you post these mm. random photos. You're still giving off cues about who you yeah. are as a human being. And so it's, it is so, it's fascinating to, to look at those things um, and to have them be like, oh yeah, I guess I am. I guess this is something, even <laughs> if I'm not doing it on purpose. I think I'm just showing these random photos, but you're still selecting them and you're still, still selecting them for what you think for an imagined audience for, for mm-hmm. the people that you, otherwise you wouldn't be posting them. You just keep them for yourself. Mm-hmm. You're posting for imagined, an imagined audience. So um, but again, a long-winded answer to your question is it is uh, the beautiful thing about teaching social media is they already have experience with every single thing we're going to talk about. They've been doing it their whole lives. I look yeah. at my job as giving them a language to talk about it. And, and that's been like a really cool approach to take. And the discussions in that class, the discussions in that class are a ball. We have a really good time. (laughs) You cannot not communicate. Exactly. Exactly. As, as they say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure the discussions go all over the place and I'm sure, yeah, you mentioned in the evals that students say this course like is different from what I expected, but is more than what I expected. I'm assuming with a course with the title being social media. You get students from all over the university, not just because uh, I know I do academic advising and comm and PR. I know that they're interested in it, media people. Um, and know that there's a prerequisite for it, Media 120, um, but Media 120 isn't the gen ed curriculum. So a lot of people will have that. So do you get people from all over the university, uh, from every department major? I do. I get a lot of... Um... A lot of times what will happen is it's a, a, a very significant amount of media students, common PR students, but then there are tons of students over the course of the university who have media as a minor um, oh, yeah. that comp- yeah. will complement something like marketing, something like psychology. And so I will get a lot of students who have a media minor who are coming to me from a really different department uh, and, and are having a bit of a different experience than they would in their home department and seem to really like it, seem to really enjoy it. Um, so are those the, are those the classes you have on the horizon in this upcoming semester? Yeah. Um, I should mention my media 454, my media analysis class, because I talk so much about social media. People love to talk to me about social media. Makes sense. I like talking about it too, but my media analysis and criticism class is my absolute favorite class to teach because it's my specific area of expertise. So it is a critical cultural studies approach to media analysis. So not media effects, not what media do to people, but what people do with media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I teach it as a television criticism class because we have we have film history, we have um, intro to film and those sort of film-based classes. And then I teach social media as a theory class. And so um, we, we really, especially, you know, you mentioned this earlier about those taken for granted assumptions that we have about media. The whole goal of the Media 454 class I teach is to think about what stories media have been telling us, television in particular, have been telling us for years and years and years and years and unpacking mm-hmm. them a little bit, thinking about where they come from and what alternatives exist and have started to exist. So we do talk a lot about um, identity and media. So gender and race and class and sexuality. We talk a lot about 
about who owns the media and what impact that has on what we end up seeing. We talk about globalization. We talk about um, new media a little bit. We talk about media fandom. It's it's also a super fun. And like I said, all sort of in within the the framework of of television as our as sort of a case study, I guess you could say. Yeah, case study because it's all of TV. Um, but it's a blast. We have a really good time in there. We watch a lot of TV. So um, I think students like that. And we do analysis. I mean, it's, we're not just watching just for fun, but it is, oh, yeah. it, we're doing work. That sounds, that sounds super interesting. It's great. I, I noticed when I was reviewing um, your publications, yeah. uh, among among them included a journal, a journal of fandom studies. Yep. Um, so I'm like, wow, I, I didn't know that that existed. It does. Um, um, a lot it, of material there. It is a really robust area of uh, media and cultural studies, the the study of fandom and whole, like I guess, yeah, whole journals, whole conferences dedicated to it. And it is interviewing fans. I, I interview fans and audiences um, for my research and interviewing fans is a blast because it, it, I mean, people are so invested in the things that they love. And, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't talk to sports fans. I don't do like media and sports type stuff, but I think it's a really easy way to see. It's a really analogous way to see how invested people get because just as invested as people get in the, in the chiefs or the Cardinals, those same people are just as invested in Game of Thrones or Star Wars or mm. um, Parks and Rec or The Office. You know, I have, a, I have a piece about The Office, which is the one that's in the journal of, of Fandom City. Oh. So it's so fun. People just, it's really easy to get people to talk to you for free, if you, even if you can't incentivize them when it's something that they really care about. <laughs> yeah, I've never, you know, never had a hard time getting getting a fan to talk about the thing that they're interested in. Exactly. Exactly. What are what are your favorite TV shows as far as the ones that are currently airing? Um, so I have just uh, caught up on what we do on the shadows, which is a comedy on FX about there was a, there was a what we do in the shadows film probably 2014 15 16 and this is a television version of it it's hmm. the same premise but different characters so it's about a group of vampires living in like modern day Staten Island it is nice. the funniest thing it is the funniest thing in the entire world. And I love it so much. And Professor Peepa, my colleague and I love to send each other gifts of the characters from the show just all the time. There's a gift for everything. <laughs> and, and we love to send each other these gifts. Ted Lasso is a, is a, is a favorite. Um, I, I mentioned these two shows because I have a tendency. It makes my, it makes my husband crazy to um, listen to shows more than I watch them because I'm like playing, playing Candy Crush or scrolling through Twitter or whatever while I watch. But uh-huh. Ted Lasso and What We Do in the Shadows are two shows that have made me like put my phone down and pay full attention because I just, they're, they're so, they're so wonderful. Now, I love asking people who um, watch Ted Lasso what they think about Nate, the character of Nate at the end of season. Hmm? Um, I, I'm not going to answer that because you would have to, to edit out too many expletives. And so (laughs) I'll just let that, that reaction stand in for how I feel about Nate right now. I feel so sorry for that though, Jay, because- I feel validated. 
oh my gosh, Nick Muhammad, bless his sweet little heart. Um, right after the, the finale aired, um, there was this really great social media post circulating about how it was an interview with Nick Muhammad who plays Nate. And he was like, I read that script and I was like, please don't make me do this. <laughs> Everybody's going to hate me. Bless his heart. So I really, I really am trying to separate how I feel about Nate from how I feel about the poor actor who plays him. Bless his heart. Well, that's, that's a good point. I, I, um, I just assume all the characters in the TV shows I watch are real people. So there's, there's that. Well, <laughs> I'll bring this that. back to my research, actually. Um, my advisor from grad school and I have a book chapter about um, the show Breaking Bad and specifically mm. the character Skylar White, who was the protagonist's wife. Um, mm-hmm. And the piece that we that we wrote, the, the, it, we did interviews with with um, fans of the show, and one piece that came out of that was about anti fans, specifically related to Skylar, who really really loved the show, but this particular element, being Skylar White of the show, um, they hated. And in some of the things, again, I'm not going to, I will spare you the expletives, but um, people said horrible things about her on social media, um, really horrible gendered sort of misogyny things. Uh, and Anna Gunn, the actress who played, a part of what precipitated this, this article was Anna Gunn, who played Skylar, wrote an essay for the New York Times that was, I think it was the New York Times, that was like, y'all need to chill out because I'm a real human being and you're sending me a real human being death threats because you hate my character. It's Yikes. wild. It's yeah. wild. Yeah. Um, I just didn't understand the character motivation of of, of Nate because he like everyone has just been so nice to him and given him so many opportunities and help and he's like just mad for no reason it seems to me the best I can figure because you're right because in the first season we see this this change especially when Roy takes that that leadership role and gets on Jamie and the other guys for bullying him and then Ted takes him under his wing and he becomes part of the diamond dogs he really starts to feel this sense of inclusiveness the best I can figure based on the development of this season is it's got to do, it has to, it seems to me, have something to do with the insecurities and the deficiencies he, he feels from his relationship with his dad and the way the expectations his dad has for him. And maybe that is this deep, it still doesn't make sense. I agree with you, but, but the mental gymnastics that I've done are, he, he, the inadequacies that he feels. And then there's this weird, you know, he, he helps them win a game and he blows up on Twitter and starts to get a lot of recognition. And, and maybe there's like a sort of inflated sense of, I don't know, Jay, I got nothing for you. I've been trying to make sense of it, but. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, yeah, it seems like a, a mixture of self-loathing and an inferiority complex, but still it just seems it's such a, bold move from the storytelling point of view yeah but then when I ask people about it they're like no that checks out people are like that um and I'm like no maybe I we get just, it. maybe we just have better people in our lives maybe so we're not used um, to those people well, yeah when he, to that. The, when he tore the belief sign down oh yeah I that was that really felt like like I was so obscening of course but that felt probably the most over the top thing for me um mm. Would he really do that? You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm really interested to see now that he's with Rupert where it goes in season three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. It's certainly, um, certainly a good, a good story choice as far as raising interest for the next season. And I feel like we'd have a whole conversation 
devoted specifically to um, just more more questions and answers from you on television criticism and yeah. uh, in media criticism. Uh, but that, that would be for maybe some some future day. Keep me keep me in the loop. I'm always happy to chat. And it's it's funny because I say this to my students all of the time. It is bonkers to me that um, I get paid a salary to to come in to class and chat with my students about TikTok and TV shows and then write about them and. Um, I feel like I've tricked somebody, but I feel really good about it. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to keep with that. <laughs> I relate to that feeling and I, you know, congratulations. <laughs> you found your calling. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I feel really good about it. That concludes this episode of our cold conversations. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the show on social media you can follow the college on Facebook at msu.rcole and on Twitter at msu underscore rcole. And if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear about on the podcast, please let me know. You can get a hold of me at jhoward at missouristate.edu. Thanks so much for listening.